Okay, now let's talk about the neurotransmitter. I already mentioned what are the neurotransmitter and where they are acting, but now you have it on paper. Um, so acetylcholine for cholinergic or parasympathetic. Parasympathetic, I mean in terms of the effector organ because acetylcholine is there um, at all the preganglionic neuron, no matter if they are cholinergic or uh, adrenergic, like if it's parasympathetic or sympathetic system, you have, choline, uh, you have acetylcholine um, on these. You see here you have acetylcholine on all the ganglia. So you have to know that um, acetylcholine, even if it's the sympathetic nervous system, you have the acetylcholine neurotransmitter at the preganglionic uh, synapse. <coughs> now acetylcholine, it's all the parasympathetic nervous system at the pre and then all the postganglionic neurons. So that's here. You have acetylcholine at the postganglionic neuron. And then um, also for the, the sweat gland. But we are not going to talk too much about the treatment of you know hyperhidrosis. Uh, so this is not as much, uh, it's not as important. Really what you have to know is where it is at the ganglia and then the postganglionic neuron. Norepinephrine, also known as noradrenaline, and that's why it's called adrenergic. In Europe, we use noradrenaline rather than norepinephrine, so I don't know, it's something <laughs> that is also different here. Um, so it's released by most of the postganglionic uh, neuron of the sympathetic nervous system, and that's what you see here. You see norepinephrine. And then epinephrine is released by um, the adrenal medulla. But in general, when we talk about adrenergic nervous system, we talk about norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you have here. And we'll see also there are different types of cholinergic receptor and different types of adrenergic receptor. That's what you, you have here on the slide, but I will have other um, slide later on. So for um, the uh, ganglionic, uh, receptor, it's called the nicotinic receptor for the cholinergic, uh, for acetylcholine, it binds to the nicotinic receptor. And then on the postganglionic neuron, it binds to a receptor that is called muscarinic. And we'll have slide later, uh, so I will uh, explain it more in detail later. And for norepinephrine, there are two types of receptor, the alpha and the beta receptor. So let's talk about first the cholinergic receptor uh, subtype. As I said, two different types, muscarinic receptor and nicotinic receptor. Why is it called nicotinic receptor? Because nicotine binds to it, and that was a tool, it's a pharmacological tool that was used to identify those receptors, but it's the receptor for acetylcholine, and it's nicotinic uh, receptor, they are found in the central nervous system. So you remember the central nervous system is regulated by acetylcholine and we saw like treatment of Alzheimer's, treatment of Parkinson, some anticholinergic are used. And then muscarinic receptor are also found in the central neuro nervous system, yeah. Parkinson. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah, nicotine in, uh, in Parkinson's disease. Uh, of course, not smoking. Yeah, some people who smoke, but more like the patch, the nicotinic patch, which is a pharmacologic 
uh, treatment and where you can uh, really monitor the dose of nicotine that is delivered. Yeah, it's in uh, investigation for uh, Parkinson. Because it's really an imbalance between cholinergic and uh, and dopamine uh, function. Nicotinic receptor, they are, as I said, um, in the uh, autonomic ganglia. So here you have the nicotinic receptor in the ganglia and the muscarinic receptor, they are in the target organ. So when we talk about anticholinergic drug for the treatment of asthma, you have to think muscarinic receptor. Um, nicotinic receptor, they are at the neuromuscular junction. So here you have the motor neuron and you see that here you have nicotinic receptor. So for the neuromuscular junction, think about nicotinic receptor. Um, also the ad adrenal medulla to release, to produce the catecholamine and the uh, catecholamine uh, release. And then muscarinic, so central nervous system, postganglionic, so that's what I said, and in the sweat gland. So two type of receptor, but acetylcholine can bind to both types. Acetylcholine can bind to the nicotinic and the muscarinic. Nicotine will bind only to the nicotinic <coughs> receptor. Muscarine only to the muscarinic receptor. And we talk about drug, they are designed, you see they, are, they have different shape, you know, try to, just to understand. So just because they have different shape, the drugs that are gonna bind to it, some are gonna be more specific to the nicotinic receptor and some are gonna be more specific to the muscarinic receptor. Uh, first of all, so acetylcholine, it synthesized from glucose and choline. So you know that uh, in the Krebs cycle, glucose is broken down into pyruvate and then pyruvate is gonna be converted to acetylcholine A and when acetylcholine and choline get together, they form acetylcholine, and that's the neurotransmitter that is um, stored in vesicles. So like every uh, neurotransmitter, they are stored in vesicle and then released <coughs> by exocytosis. Then I had a question last quarter regarding um, the methamphetamine as used as for the treatment of uh, depression and what's the difference between a stimulant and a reuptake inhibitor. What you have to know is that when you have uh, the release here, you know, by excitosis, it's like a massive release of neurotransmitter. You have like millions of molecules that are released in the synaptic cleft. But when you have a reuptake, when it's uh, the reuptake that is blocked, you don't have as much uh, of the neurotransmitter that is present in the synaptic cleft as when it's released after an, in, an impulse. So that's why, you know, drugs that are stimulant, they are the one that increase the release of a neurotransmitter. And so that, you know, you're gonna have thousands, millions of neurotransmitter that is there and that's gonna bind to all the receptors that are present compared to um, if you block the reuptake of those neurotransmitters that are already uh, present in the cleft, but because it's, you have that equilibrium and it's, you know, you don't have all of them that are released and present in the cleft, some are still bound to the receptor, so that's why you don't have the same effect as a stimulant when you block the reuptake. Yeah. 
But something that confused me in reading the chapters, which is more important, or what's the exact mechanism of action? Is it having the neurotransmitters within the synaptic cleft or bound to the post synaptic? You, to have an effect, the, the neurotransmitter has to bind to the receptor. But the, like the, the neurotransmitter and its receptor is a reversible binding. So that means it binds, produces this effect, and then it's released in the cloud. But when it's there, it can either be reuptaken or degraded by, for example, the acetylcholine mercury. Because you don't want that neurotransmitter to come back and bind again in a physiological mode. That's why you know people who have disease, you have either not enough neurotransmitter, for example, in Alzheimer's, and then you're losing your memory because you don't have enough, or, or you have too much and you can have um, other form of, of effect. If you have too much of the neurotransmitter, you can have excited toxicity. If you have too much of the... So in pathological state, you can have an imbalance, but in physiological condition, those neurotransmitter is just you know, a process. It binds, produce the effect, and then it's either reuptaken or degraded. For example, with, with the SSRIs, mm -hmm. you want them to continue to bind at the receptor. You want, because you know, those people, they don't have enough of serotonin, so you want more, but you don't, <coughs> you don't want too much either, because you know, otherwise they're gonna have a stimulant effect. <coughs> you want to treat the disease, and that's why, you know, depending on the disease you want, you want a drug, you know, that's why it's so hard to make drugs, actually, because you want the good effect, and you don't want the adverse effects, so, yeah. When you have a drug that's just connecting the reuptake, does the extra time it spends in the class degraded at all? So then when it's reuptaken, it's maybe with a lesser quality than the first time it's made? No, it's gonna be, yeah, it's gonna be the same molecule. If it's not degraded, it's gonna be the same molecule. Yeah. Question, I answered it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Have you taken a drug that's stimulating the release of the neurotransmitter? Uh-huh. Has it ever um, achieved so much that it can actually affect the precursor cells that yeah, and that's why also, you know, like, neurons, they are smart cells, and they adapt to, you know, like, if you have a, a massive increase of, re, uh, of neurotransmitter that is released, uh, you're going to have, you know, your, uh, your receptor that are going to be there, you know, to, to react to them. So, you know, it's like, it's called synaptic plasticity. The neurons adapt all the time to uh, what's going on, just you know, to feel better and survive because they don't want to die. If you have too much, you know, too much of neurotransmitter that come all the time, they are gonna die. So they just adapt and it's called yeah, synaptic plasticity. Yeah. Like for example, the beta blockers. It's a, it's a, it's a that's what happens with the beta blockers. You know, uh, cells are going to adapt, and uh, if you keep blocking those receptors, they are going to produce more receptors. So yeah. So other question? Yeah. That's you know that's what happened with tolerance. So when you know people get tolerant to the drug, it's, it's because of that. Because <coughs> just the body you know reacts to it, and then you need more drug to see the same effect. 
So, and then so I said, you know, release by um, exocytosis, and then acetylcholine is um, hydrolyzed, so it's degraded by the acetylcholine esterase, and if you remember the drug for Alzheimer's, acetylcholine esterase inhibitors were a drug used for the CNS, and in that way you have more acetylcholine that is present in the synapse, and that, that was a drug that was acting in the central nervous system. Now we'll see drugs that are acting in the periphery and they have the same mechanism of action. Um, so the effect of acetylcholine, I already mentioned it, but now you have everything on uh, <laughs> one slide. So reduce the heart rate, prolongs your um, auriculoventricular conduction time. Did you see the cardiovascular system in pathophys? So you know what is <laughs> AV conduction time, uh, reduce the contractile force of um, the atria in terms of the respiratory system. As I said, acetylcholine induces bron bronchoconstriction, uh, so it's going to induce bronchospasm. And if you want, if you have bronchospasm, you're going to give an anticholinergic. Um, also increase the secretion from uh, the bronchi. In the eye, they are responsible for the pupil constriction, so it's called meiosis, and also for the accommodation of the near vision. So that's also um, something that you have to know. And then GI tract, it's important for the digestion, so increase the peristalsis, and also the center um, relaxation. So if you know these slides, it's going to make it easier to understand the effect of cholinergic or anticholinergic drugs. Now, epinephrine or norepinephrine, the other, uh, the neurotransmitter of the sympathetic uh, nervous system. So it's synthesized from tyrosine, and uh, which is going to be converted in dopa and dopamine. So dopamine is a precursor to uh, norepinephrine. And so that's what you see here. You have the pathways. Again, neurotransmitter stored in vesicles release uh, following depolarization. So we'll see uh, what depolarization means in terms of muscle contraction. Did you talk about depolarization in your cardiovascular uh, a little bit? <laughs> and um, the enzyme that... Um, Inactivate norepinephrine is monoamine oxidase. Do you remember uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors? And the COMP, there was also a question on the final exam, catecholamine or methyltransferase. <laughs> so these enzymes are actually used to, um, they are the ones that degrade norepinephrine. And you can also, it can be uh, reuptaken into uh, the presynaptic. Now, um, what are the receptors? So acetylcholine binds to nicotinic muscarinic receptor. Norepinephrine binds to adrenergic receptor, and there are different types of adrenergic receptor. They are called alpha and beta receptors. Now, in terms of catecholamine, there are different catecholamine. 
as I mentioned, epinephrine is part is one of those catecholamines. Epinephrine can bind to any uh, receptor, the alpha, the beta, and because there are two different type of alpha receptor, alpha one and alpha two, two type of beta receptor, and maybe more, but the one that's unknown so far and has a clinical significance are beta one, beta two. Epinephrine activate all of them. Norepinephrine activate alpha one, alpha two, and beta one. Doesn't activate beta two and doesn't activate the dopamine receptor. Dopamine is the only one that can activate the dopamine receptor because that's why they are called dopamine receptor. And activate also the alpha one and the beta one adrenergic receptor. <coughs> Now, what are the function of those subtypes of receptor? Now, you have to know where those receptors are located, on which uh, tissue or which organ. If you know where the alpha-1 receptors are, the beta-1, it's going to also make more sense to uh, learn the pharmacology of the drugs uh, that are used for treating different disorders. So alpha-1, they are present on the arterioles, and they're responsible for the vasoconstriction. So if you activate an alpha-1 receptor, you produce a vasoconstriction. If you have high blood pressure, you want a vasodilation, so you want a blocker. You want an antagonist to the alpha-1 receptor. Also responsible for the ejaculation and the contraction of um, the bladder neck and the prostate. Alpha-2 receptor, they are located in the presynaptic. So those receptors are not on the post synaptic, but they are on the pre. And what they do actually, they are uh, involved in the regulation of the release of norepinephrine. And so uh, alpha-2 receptors, we'll see that some alpha-2 agonists, if you uh, give an alpha-2 uh, agonist increase, um, it blocks actually the release of um, norepinephrine because it's like, if you have too much uh, norepinephrine in your cleft, you want to tell your neuron, okay, that's it, I don't want anymore. So it's gonna bind to the alpha-2 receptor and block more release. It's like a negative feedback also. Is that it for alpha-1? Alpha-1 is essentially, yeah, it's, uh, it. yeah. Beta-1, beta-2, very important, beta-1, this you have to know, it's in the heart. And that's why beta blockers, they essentially bind to, the selective beta blockers, they are gonna bind to the beta one receptor. And once um, norepinephrine bind to the beta one receptor, you have an increase of the heart rate, you have an increase of the force of contraction, increase of the conduction of uh, the AV node. So if you block those receptors, you reduce the heart rate, they can be used for the treatment of tachycardia. Uh, they're also um, acting on regulating the blood pressure because if you reduce your cardiac output, you're gonna reduce the blood pressure. There is also some beta-1 receptor on the kidney and they are involved in the renin release. I don't know if you talk about renin release. Yeah. No. So we'll see about, <laughs> you know. This quarter we'll talk about the renin angiotensin and what are the drugs that can influence this for the treatment of hypertension. Now, beta-2, they are the ones that are located on uh, the bronchi. So they're responsible for the bronchodilation. 
And as I mentioned, beta mimetic are going to be beta two mimetic are going to be used for the treatment of asthma because they uh, promote bronchial bronchial dilation. Uh, they also promote the relaxation of the uterine muscle. They induce vasodilation. They are also involved in the um, glycogenolysis. And then finally, dopamine. In terms of peripheral. Um, effect dopamine is not as important as, as the central nervous system and the only effect is that it uh, dilates the renal uh, blood vessel um now let's talk about the drug yeah so can you see the in the Cholinergic drug, so when we talk about cholinergic drug, we make the difference between the drugs that are acting on the muscarinic receptor and the one that are binding on the nicotinic receptor. And you see, I always have like a slide to you know, organize your lecture where you can you know, categorize them. So first of all, let's talk about the uh, muscarinic agonist, and then we'll see the muscarinic antagonist. As I said, muscarine was the pharmacologic agent that was used to discover the muscarinic receptor, and it's actually uh, isolated from a mushroom, and that's, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. <laughs> Clitocid, that's the French name, but. <laughs> Clitocide. Okay, so that's uh, the mushroom where uh, muscarine was um, extracted from. So the cholinergic drugs, so the agonists, that mean they are going to make the same effect as if the acetylcholine was binding to the muscarinic receptor. So they enhance the transmission at cholinergic synapse, those agonists, those muscarinic agonists. Acetylcholine, it doesn't really have uh, clinical uh, use because of the short uh, duration of action. Muscarinic, uh, muscarine is a pharmacological tool, but no, there is no uh, clinical indication for it. The one that have clinical indication are betanecol, which is used for the treatment of urinary retention, because acetylcholine promotes uh, the relaxation of the bladder and the muscle of the bladder, and also increases the GI uh, motility. And then pilocarpine is used for the treatment uh, of glaucoma. Is betanicol? Is that IV then for when patients come into the ER? It's it can be uh, <coughs> IV but oral too. Yeah. <coughs> Anticholinergic drug. So that's. The opposite, yeah. Uh, the previous slide, um, with that first drug treating urinary retention, does it allow the release of urine? Yes, okay. it promotes the relaxation. And then we'll see the one for overactive bladder will give an anti-muscarinic. Okay. This one is just, you know, they cannot, <laughs> they cannot pee, but when we have an overactive bladder, you give an anti-muscarinic. So an overactive bladder is one that yeah. So now anticholinergic drug. First of all, we talk about muscarinic antagonists. Um, 
block the muscarinic receptor. Uh, here is a list <laughs> of agents. I put the most uh, relevant one, atropine, uh, scopolamine, <coughs> and ifratropium bromide. This one is kind of hard to remember now, but when we see the respiratory drug, that's one drug that is used for the treatment of COPD. It's atrovan. Um, and so, you, you know, just get used to it right now. You'll see it in four weeks when we talk about respiratory drug. And here it's all the clinical use. Um, it's all the clinical use for anti-muscarinic drug. Not necessarily, you know, this one, as I said, is more for the treatment of respiratory, like asthma or COPD. Um, scopolamine is used for the treatment of motion sickness. Atropine is more used in ophthalmology when you have to do uh, an exam just to dilate your pupil and then they can look in your, that's why, you know, I don't know if you have, I did it, it's really uncomfortable because your pupil are dilated and that's what they use. Um, so here are all the clinical use, motion sickness, asthma, overactive bladder, we'll see on the next slide, antispasmodic, bradyarrhythmia, so because um, they can increase the heart rate, so they are used for the treatment of bradycardia, anti-Parkinson, that's from last quarter, but doesn't mean you have to forget about it. <laughs> and then uh, also uh, in ophthalmology. Now here are the drugs for the treatment of uh, the overactive bladders. Now there are, with, you know, we talk about muscarinic nicotinic receptor. Within the muscarinic receptor, there are three subtypes. M1, M2, M3. M1 is on the salivary gland and central nervous system. M2 is in the heart. And then M3 are located on the bladder um, detrusor. So if you want to treat overactive bladder and you want a selective agent, you want a, an agent that are gonna be selective for the M3 receptor because you're gonna have less adverse effects. But of course, you know, not all the drugs are like that. <laughs> and you have non-selective uh, anti-muscarinic, which bind to M2 and M3 receptor. So that means since they bind to M2, you can have some cardiac adverse effects. Um, and that's uh, D-trol-tolterodine. Um, this one, it's an older agent. And then the newer agents, such as Ditropen, these are M3 selective, so they, are, uh, they have fewer adverse effects, and because these drugs are usually given to elderly patients, it's always better to have a selective drug. So that's, here you have the one uh, you have to know, and this one is really highly uh, selective. Uh, now, cholinergic agent, nicotine, have you had uh, with Dr. Thorna, did she talk about uh, nicotine? <laughs> Smoking cessation. <laughs> so you already know. <laughs> so nicotine, you know, was, um, you know, it's extracted from tobacco leaves and uh, in tobacco you have one or two percent of uh, nicotine and the cigarettes deliver one milligram and you have to know that 60 milligram can be uh, fatal. Because that's really an acute poisoning, you know. <laughs> I don't think just smoking you can get, you can reach that point, but um, 
nicotine can be uh, fatal. So depending on the dosage, nicotine can either activate the nicotinic receptor, and that's the case at low dose, such as when you smoke, or people who smoke, <laughs> hopefully nobody smokes. <laughs> and then uh, can inhibit uh, the nicotinic receptor at high dose, more like in acute poisoning. And then they can bind a, a different side, you know, like nicotine is not gonna distinguish if the central nervous system or if it's the periphery. And so that's why smokers, they have all those adverse effects. They have, you know, increase of the heartbeat. They can have effect on the, on the CNS just because nicotine, you know, bind to all the nicotinic receptor in, um, in the body. So what are the effects of nicotine? So at low dose, that is caused by uh, smoking cigarette. You have the cardiovascular uh, effects or result from the activation of the nicotinic receptor. If you remember, the nicotinic receptor, they are in the ganglia of all the autonomic nervous system and in the adrenal medulla. Because those uh, receptors are on the ganglia, they can affect the adrenergic system and increase um, the heart rate and promote uh, vasoconstriction, increase the blood pressure. So that's why it's always recommended to stop smoking for patient who has high blood pressure and also because of those uh, other uh, adverse effects. Yeah. So, this, so because it's on the ganglia, it's going to increase all... Both. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so smokers are never constipated, but they also have high blood pressure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why some smoker likes to smoke a cigarette, just because they want to go to the restroom. They want to go to the restroom. And they think they lose weight if they smoke because... <laughs> <laughs> Um, the eye effects, again, result, result from the nicotinic, uh, the effect of the nicotinic receptor in the ganglia, but also um, on the, yeah, it's in the ganglia, because nicotinic receptors, they are not on the organ, uh, only on the muscles, uh, they're only on the skeletal muscle. But by acting on the ganglia, they increase the GI tone and they can promote vomiting. So at high dose, uh, that's one of the signs of intoxication of nicotine. People can um, start vomiting. CNS effect, multiple effect, but they act as a CNS uh, stimulant. At first, they can have multiple psychological effects, facilitate memory, suppress appetite, and um, no moderate um, consumption of uh, cigarette can cause tremor and at high dose can cause convulsions. So if some of you are smoking and want to stop quit smoking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they have to smoke. Yeah, like, yeah. No, 60 is like the fatal dose. <laughs> but uh, I would say like the people who smoke yeah. like two packs or uh, two packs a day. Yeah, casual is just like the low dose. Yeah. It's like really like heavy smoker. And of course, if they're a heavy smoker, you know, the body adapts and there is all that tolerance. 
These are the three pharmacological treatments, and you probably discussed them with uh, Dr. Sarna. Bupropion, we saw it last quarter. It's, uh, <laughs> it's an atypical antidepressant. Um, it's branded as uh, Z-Band for the treatment of uh, smoking cessation. Now you have the nicotine-based uh, product, the patch, the gum, lozenge. Uh, these are Nicorette and Nicotron. Uh, I don't know here if they are over the counter or if you need yeah. yeah, so They're same now. thing in Belgium and again, you know, consultation and education is important because as I was, you know, as a pharmacist, I see like many patients, they want it to, to stop, <coughs> they try it for one week and then, oh, I'm fine and, you know, they don't want it, it's expensive. I don't know if you calculate how much it costs to smoke. <laughs> I'm sure it's not as expensive as getting their patch, but that's their excuse, and then they try for a month, they think they are okay, they stop taking their patch, and then they just relapse. So it's, you know, it's hard to quit smoking, and it's important to be, um, you know, to following up with the patient and encourage them to, you know, be compliant to their treatment and not just try for one month. And. Uh, so this allows the, the patient to substitute a pharmacological source. So you know with those patch, and you start with 21 milligrams, then 14, and then you go with the seven, and then hopefully nothing. Um, they know exactly how much they get. Uh, some patients try to smoke, and that's where they can have the toxic effect. If they try to smoke with the patch, and they are gonna be nauseous, and they are gonna have all that if they, they smoke while they have their patch. Varenicline, uh, also known as Shantix. Um, this one is a partial agonist. So if you remember, partial agonist, that means acts as an intrinsic activity, but also has some antagonist uh, effect. So it can um, you know, produce the ag agonist activity and then also uh, preventing from the nicotine to bind so that the antagonist uh, effect on the alpha four beta two, <laughs> I'm not asking you to know. <laughs> Just know it's nicotinic receptor. And this study has shown that uh, it's more effective than bupropion. Because those drugs are going to cross the blood-brain barrier, so they're going to have also the effect on the central nervous system and not only on the periphery. Now, cholinergic drug, cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, Anticholinesterase anti drugs are the ones that are called indirect-acting uh, cholinomimetic. As you know, because of donepezil and Aricept, it just uh, inhibits the enzyme that degrades acetylcholine, so that means you have more acetylcholine that is available to bind to the receptor. Doing that, that means the acetylcholine uh, is available for both muscarinic and, nicotinic, uh, and nicotinic receptor because it doesn't bind to a specific type of receptor, it just binds to the enzyme. And you have to type the reversible agent, so bind to the enzyme, inhibit the enzyme, and then you know, get uh, released from the enzyme. Neostigmine and hydrophonium, these are used for the treatment of uh, myasthenia gravis because the nicotinic receptors are essentially on the skeletal muscle. 
Then you have the irreversible agent. So that means binds to the enzyme and you have to wait until a new enzyme is synthesized <coughs> to, <laughs> to see the effect. And the irreversible agent is ecotheophate. And just, you know, uh, the mustard gas are actually also binding irreversibly to those enzymes and of course have no uh, clinical use, but they are related to um, those agents. Anticholinergic drug, neuromuscular blocking agent. So here you have the neuromuscular junction. When you have a, a signal, so let's say you want a contraction, there is a signal that you send to the motor neuron, and then you're gonna have release of acetylcholine in the uh, neuromuscular junction, and then you're gonna have an action potential. And because of that action potential, you have release of calcium that's gonna bind to the protein that are um, within your muscle fibers and induce the contraction. And that's the physiology of it. And here, um, so here it's at rest, so you see uh, you have the positive charge outside, the negative one inside. When it's depolarized, that means you have the opposite, you have the negative charge inside and the positive outside. First, you have the depolarization localized at the neuromuscular junction. But of course, you know, you want the contraction to go along the fibers. So that depolarization is gonna propagate not only at the junction, but also along the fibers. And in order to get a new stimulus, you have to go back to the resting uh, position and then the cycle can uh, take place again. If during the depolarization, you cannot have another uh, depolarization. It has to go back to um, the bas basal level. And so the agent <coughs> that can produce um, the neuromuscular blocking agents so that are gonna bind to uh, the nicotinic receptor and promote relaxation. They are used for uh, surgical procedures just to promote um, relaxation of the skeletal muscle. You have the non-depolarizing uh, non agent. So that means those bind to the receptor and don't induce depolarization. So if you don't have depolarization, you don't have contraction. If you don't have contraction, you have relaxation. That's tubocurarin. And uh, the effect lasts five to 10 minutes, so very uh, short acting. Now you have the depolarizing, depolarizing agent, so those that means they are gonna induce depolarization and induce like a transient contraction, but then the, um, they remain on the depolarizing, uh, depolarizing state. So that means you cannot have a f you know, another, uh, an another effect and it induce like a paralysis. It's what happened also during a tetanic contraction. It's just, you know, because you, your muscles start you know, to contract and then finally just paralyze because of the depolarization state. So that's the difference between non-depolarizing and depolarizing. Because they are inducing depolarization, you cannot produce another, um, another depolarization which make uh, the muscle fiber resistant to the action of acetylcholine and just get relaxed and paralyzed, basically. What would the indication be for that? It's the same thing, and that's what is used for the treatment of uh, you know, like uh, before surgical procedure, just uh, like if you have to do an intubation. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a really strong, intense contraction, it's just 
it's just a yeah, paralysis and they has to be monitored because of course you can have uh, you know the diaphragm is a skeletal muscle mm -hmm. and if you don't monitor this your diaphragm you know is used for re uh, you know respiration and if you don't monitor you can have uh, respiratory depression so these are yeah um, if you guys look at the policy ECT here at UCLA They're not using outpatient, they are using clinical setting. Yeah. So they're paralytic, but not satanic. It's kind of the same, you know, like if, yeah, because first the, you have yeah, um, excess contraction and then the ultimate, you know, effect of a tetanic contraction is just paralysis, you know, it's like. Because in surgery, they're very, you know, obviously very relaxed. Mm -hmm. No, but because you want, you know, the tube to be, you know, like, relax. You don't want it to get stuck. So just, you know, like, relax the diaphragm and then you can intubate, yeah. No, Botox. Do you have wrinkle? So the mechanism of action is a little bit different. It just inhibits the uh, um, acetylcholine release uh, at the neuromuscular junction. So it's, it's not binding to a receptor, it just inhibits the release. And so it just makes uh, temporary local paralysis of the injected muscle last week to several months. Indication, in the US there are limited disorders. Um, it's used for strabismus. Uh, severe uh, primary axillary hyperhidrosis because you know acetylcholine is also involved in sweat gland secretion and uh, cervical dystonia. That's the only of uh, the approved uh, indication. Now there are a lot of investigation with Botox, and I had sciatic pain. They wanted to give me Botox shot, but I was not <laughs> really. Um, I was not, you know. <laughs> willing to get because and again this has to be done under like really um well-trained uh people and because if they mess it up then you have a permanent paralysis that's why i don't know cosmetic use what's the risk versus the benefits you don't have wrinkle but you might get <laughs> paralysis um if you are thinking of considering botox <laughs> just think about the adverse effect Adrenergic agonist. Um, so we talk about the different receptor, alpha and beta. This is, again, a slide that summarizes what I've said before. And now let's talk about the catecholamine. Epinephrine, you know, is like the EpiPen. Um, so we said that epinephrine binds to all receptor, alpha and beta receptor produce cardiac stimulation because it has the same effect as um, norepinephrine, bronchodilation, constriction of the arterial. Clinical use, you know, is like the EpiPen, so it's used for the treatment of acute hypersensitivity reaction. So um, 
And it's also used um, in the ER as a cardiac stimulant and can be used uh, in combination with a local anesthetic because it just promotes uh, vasoconstriction and then the local anesthetic is going to last longer. Isoproterenol, uh, it's a beta selective, so only bind to the beta receptor, beta 1 and beta 2, so that means cardiac stimulation, bronchodilation. The butamine, it's a beta 1 uh, stimulant, and they are used uh, to increase you know, the contractility, increase cardiac output, so treatment of cardiac heart failure or cardiac arrest. Again, those drugs are drugs that are used uh, in the ER. Norepinephrine, so it's the neurotransmitter. Uh, it's only used in the hypotensive uh, states. You know, it's also um, not used as an outpatient setting. And dopamine, as I said, it only stimulates uh, the renal receptor, can produce vasodilation of renal and mesenteric arteries, and can be used in hypotensive uh, states or shock. Now the sympathomimetic drugs that are non-catecholamine, and these again, we'll see them during the respiratory drugs, but that's just for you to get familiar to them. Beta 2 uh, mimetic, yeah? It binds to the alpha receptor. Yeah, yeah it can't, but it's not, like it doesn't have any indication for that, yeah. Because it's essentially on the renal, uh, the renal vasculature, uh, okay. yeah. Beta-1 agonists, these are the ones that's used for the treatment of asthma, beta-mimetic. Alpha-1 agonists, um, that's the one you have in the nasal decongestant, phenylephrine. The alpha-2 selective agonists, remember they are presynaptic. And these are, for example, it's clonidine, it's used for the treatment of hypertension. Migraine and opioid withdrawal syndrome, we'll talk about it next week when Dr. Campton talk about uh, opioid. This miscellaneous, we'll talk about it uh, last quarter, so it's just to remind you. These are the chemical structure, and then finally the antagonists, these are First of all, the alpha blockers that are used for the treatment of hypertension. We'll see this in detail also when I talk about the cardiovascular drug. So this is the introduction to it. You have alpha-1 uh, selective antagonist because they are binding to the receptor on the arteriole. They are used for the treatment of hypertension. And then you have other agents, and they're also used for the uh, BPH treatment uh, because they are more selective for the smooth muscle of the prostate. And that's Flomax, so you probably seen the commercial on TV. So that's an alpha-1 selective antagonist. Other drugs that are used for the treatment of BPH are, uh, is finasteride. It has a different mechanism of action, bind to the 5-alpha the uh, reductase. And if you remember, 5-alpha reductase is involved in the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. Um, and then finally, the beta blockers. You have different types. The one that are going to bind to both beta 1, beta 2. These are the first agent. Propanolol was the first beta blockers, and it was not selective, was binding to both. Then you have adverse effect. You can have bronchospasm, not indicated for patients with asthma. The newer one, the selective one, only binds to the heart, 
to the receptor in the heart, fewer adverse effects. So this is metoprolol. You have one that is used for the glaucoma treatment. And then finally, you have um, two different, uh, you have the partial agonists, so that means they have um, an agonist and an antagonist function. The advantage is because they have an agonist function, you don't have as much as bradycardia, because it can stimulate the receptor as well. And then the non-selective one that can bind the alpha receptor, those you can have more um, adverse effect with the blood pressure because they bind to the arterial. And this is the list of their clinical use, and this, I promise, we'll see it all over this quarter. So migraine, treatment of angina, hypertension, cardiac heart failure. So don't be afraid. This you know, is just the introduction, and we'll see them over and over, but this is a good summary slide for your uh, midterm. <laughs> okay, I'm a little bit late. Uh, have a good weekend.